If you take all of the people in the world who've ever heard about Jesus Christ, all of the people who understand what he said about himself, if, if you take all of those people, you can divide them up into two simple groups. Those who believe that he is who he said he was and those who don't. It's really very simple because there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. You can choose to believe all sorts of things about him, but at the end of the day, he either is God, the one and only true God that he claimed to be, or he isn't. It's really just that simple. Sometimes people try to complicate the issue. They say things like he was a great teacher, a positive influence, a spiritual leader, a, a great prophetic voice, the creator of a new religion. All good descriptions, but they stop short of affirming that he is actually God, the Messiah, the one that he claimed to be. But when, when all is said and done, it just isn't complicated at all. You either believe that Jesus is God or you don't. And so the evangelical church in the West has for at least a generation honed in on that uh, clear distinction, I think with laser beam focus, and we have absolutely hammered people with the message that Jesus is God. You must believe that in order to be saved, which is true and right and necessary. So, you know, pat on the back to the church, job well done. The trouble is, it stops short of the rest of the message that we're supposed to be sharing. I think we have assumed that everyone who professes belief in Christ, everyone who says they believe that he is who he said he was, is then a Christian, a born-again believer, particularly once you frame that belief in the context of a prayer of confession or what we like to call the sinner's prayer. The problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. There is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. There is no set of words or formula that we can pray that makes you a Christian. In fact, you can believe that Jesus is who he said he was and not be a born-again believer. Do you know that? Why? Because belief in Christ is not the same thing as faith in Christ. And we'll dig into this a bit deeper today, and we're going to look at how Jesus and the biblical writers define belief and faith and why it's so important that we understand that there's a difference and what that difference is, because if we tell ourselves that belief is the same as faith, then we view everyone who may believe that Jesus is who he said he was as eternally secure in him, even though they may not have actually placed their faith in him, which is an exceedingly perilous place for the church to lead people if that is as far as we take them and, and simply deposit them there to believe that they're secure in their acknowledgement of his identity alone. Which then really begs the question, how many people has the church led to believe in Christ, but stopped short of teaching them what it means to place our faith in Christ? Because it's easy to believe. It's easy to say that you agree with a concept or a philosophy, a teaching, some historical record without ever actually placing your faith in that belief. It's a different thing. To believe in something is an intellectual assent, which is certainly required for faith and salvation. But belief on its own cannot span the great chasm created by our sin that separates us from God. The only way to bridge that gap is by His grace through faith. 
And all of that is a gift from God. So we absolutely cannot be saved merely by acknowledging intellectually that we believe he is who he says he is. We must take that understanding and acknowledgement of who he is and then place our faith in that, in him, which as we just heard in the video is very closely related to trust. So faith is a response to belief. It's what David Platt calls the biblical response to the gospel. It's where we repent and call upon the name of the Lord. And yes, it is belief in him, but it goes beyond that mental ascent, that acknowledgement of who he says he is, into a devoted faith. Because if we truly believe that he is who he said he was, and we actually trust in that by faith, then our entire lives will be defined by Jesus and his teachings. Our entire lives will be shaped by the gospel, not by our job, not by our family, not by our hobbies, not by our accomplishments, not by our failures, not by our fears, not by our disappointments. No, when we're truly saved by grace through faith, then our lives are shaped, defined, and characterized by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means our lives will no longer look the same because they cannot look the same as they would without true faith in him. And this message must resonate within every true follower of Jesus Christ. And it must become the mantra of the church if we are to make disciples of Christ. Instead of just creating a gathering of people who simply agree with Christ. James said, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James 2.19, okay, the, the world needs to hear this truth, that if you say that you believe that he is who he said he was, then you must then move beyond that intellectual ascent and actually put all of your faith in him, and there's evidence of that then in people's lives when they begin to live a life of faith, a life of trust in him, because it's a radical and very different life than we would live otherwise. True faith in Christ is a life-changing faith. Therefore, if our lives do not actually look different than they did before we professed faith in him, then I think it is reasonable and, in fact, necessary for us to ask ourselves, have I actually placed all of my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, or do I simply agree with what the Bible says about him, but have not really changed at all? That's a very important question for all of us to answer because it carries with it eternal implications. And so today, as we continue working our way through the gospel according to John, we're going to look at some of the characters in this story, those who believed without faith and what their lives looked like, and then also those who believed and then by faith completely devoted their lives to him and trusted their lives to him and how different those two ways of living actually look. Because when we stop short of sharing the whole story with people, we're in danger of selling them on a false sense of security. And our responsibility as followers of Christ is not to make people feel secure anyway. Our responsibility is to make disciples. So let's take a look at the difference as we jump back in our story where we left off last week is John chapter 11 Verses uh, 38 and 39, we'll start there. This is as Jesus now approaches the tomb where Lazarus is buried. Chapter 11, verse 38. 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. You remember from last week that Jesus was about 100 miles away from Bethany when he got word that Lazarus was ill. And then he waited until Lazarus died before making the journey to Bethany. In fact, he even said to his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And last week, we talked about the fact that there's a, a reason for everything that God does, even in our times of sorrow. And of course, we know by his statements that he allowed Lazarus to die before going to him, so that his disciples' faith would be strengthened and the Father would be glorified. But, but why wait so long? Why time the trip so as to arrive four days after Lazarus' death? Well, in the first century, one of the common rabbinic teachings concerning death was that a person's spirit would hover above their dead body after they died for three days. So that if the body was somehow resuscitated in that time, the spirit could then return to it. But after three days, if the body was not resuscitated, then the spirit would depart from it and any hope of recovery would be completely lost. Jesus knew about that. And he didn't want to leave any room for the Jewish authorities to be able to dispute the validity of the miracle, thereby taking away glory from God. So he waited four days so there could be no doubt that a true supernatural miracle had taken place. You see, nothing Jesus ever did, or does today for that matter, is random. There's always a purpose. And so now Lazarus has been dead four days. By all accounts, his body should be starting to decompose, which was so kindly pointed out by Martha, which would be giving off a foul odor. And so she tells Jesus, and let's uh, keep reading now his response, verses 40 through 44. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And in his prayer just before, he explains for the benefit of those in attendance that he's doing this, at least in part, so that they will believe that he was sent by the Father. The word believe in that verse is a Greek word. It's called pistuo. Not only means believe, but depending upon the context, it can also mean to have faith in. The reason that matters is because the same word is used differently in Scripture to apply both to those who have a genuine faith in Christ and alternatively to those who do not, even though they're described as people who believe in Jesus. One example of that is back in chapter 8, starting at verse 30. John says, as he was saying these things, many believed, pistuo, in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them. Now keep in mind, he's talking to these same people who believed in him. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So his words find no place in the people who believed in him. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And if you skip down to verse 44 in the same conversation, we find out who Jesus says their father is. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So obviously these people believed in Jesus in the sense that they could intellectually accept his claims, but they hadn't placed their faith or trust in him. They were not following him or his teachings, and they definitely had not devoted their lives to him, which was obvious by the things that they said and the way that we see them living their lives. And so this is relevant. It's so very relevant for our culture today because we've become such a hyper-individualistic society that we've internalized or tried to make private nearly everything concerning our faith, including the outward proofs, the fruit of the Spirit that is referred to by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 that is supposed to testify publicly to our true faith in Christ. But instead, we want everyone to leave us alone about our faith, don't we? Because it's a personal matter. We, we twist scriptures sometimes about not judging one another so as to continue living any way that we want to without ever having to answer to anyone about the choices that we make and the lifestyles that we live. Our society is wholesale rejecting all forms of personal accountability today. And yet... There's nothing in Scripture that suggests that we're not accountable to God or to one another within the body of Christ. In fact, it's the quite opposite of that. The Bible says to confess our sins to one another in James 5.16, to speak the truth to each other in Ephesians 4.25, to admonish one another with all wisdom in Colossians 3.16. In Luke 17.3, Jesus said, Jesus said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, leave him alone. It's his own problem. That's not what he said. Jesus said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And of course, in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches us at length about how to deal with one another, even publicly in the church if it comes to that, when someone sins against you. And this is a, this is a tiny sampling of Scripture that talks about the myriad of ways that we're supposed to hold one another accountable as brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet it has become very popular in Christian circles and in many churches to promote an easy gospel that requires little to nothing from us. And my concern is that we may be creating a church culture in this country that says, as long as you believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true, then you're a Christian. But as we've already read, the demons believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We have to do more than believe the gospel. We have to put our faith in the gospel. In Ephesians 2.8, when Paul said, by grace you've been saved through faith, that word faith is the Greek word pistis, which means persuasion, means fidelity. Okay? Saving faith goes beyond an intellectual acknowledgement that something is true. Saving faith is when we're persuaded to live a life of fidelity, a life of allegiance and obedience to Christ. 
That is life-changing faith. It looks very different from the life we lived before we were saved by grace through faith. And listen, it's not just a private matter. I'm sorry, but life-changing faith, when it is genuine, will be seen and noticed by everyone who knew you before because the change will be undeniable. By the way, that change is not about following a set of rules. We're not talking about perfection or perfect holiness because we're flawed human beings. The change that people see in those who experience the gift of life-changing faith that God gives us by His saving grace is not about perfection. And we'll look at that a little more later in our story today. First, let's finish reading about this miraculous event, the raising of a dead man, verses 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but by being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God uh, who are scattered abroad. That's a reference to all of us Gentiles. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So here we have some who believed in him, genuinely, and others who didn't, which really is a stark reality, if you think about it. We're talking about real people who were there, who witnessed firsthand Jesus raising a man who'd been dead for four days, bringing him back to life. And it says some believed in him, but are you kidding me? Some of them believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Unbelievable. So there were people there watching Jesus give life to a dead man. Obviously, they believed that he had the power to give life because they saw him do it. But they didn't have life-changing faith. They were not persuaded to live a life of devoted fidelity to Christ. Okay, as, as hard as it may be to accept, and it is hard to accept, there are and always have been people who are not going to receive the message of the gospel even if Jesus himself shows up and raises someone from the dead right in front of them. Why? Because not only is our salvation a gift from God, but so is the very faith that we need 
to accept that salvation. Which is all the more reason, hear me now, this is the reason that we must pray. Pray. And pray some more for the lost. Because we can do outreach programs and evangelism. We can work really hard and hand out all of the materials in the world. And we should do all of that and more. But at the end of the day, the work of salvation is not something that we do. It is only by the grace of God that anyone is ever saved. And obviously by our story today, it doesn't even matter how convincing our arguments are. We can have the greatest arguments in support of the gospel. We can preach the greatest sermons of all time. Jesus can show up and raise someone from the dead right in front of them. And still, some of those who witness it will not accept the gospel. This is precisely why we cover all of our evangelism and outreach efforts in a whole lot of prayer. Because once we've done all that we can to reach and convince others to follow Jesus Christ, the work of salvation still has to be done by Him. It's also why we need the gifts of the Spirit operating in our lives. Today is Pentecost Sunday. That's the day we commemorate and celebrate what God did in Acts 2 by His Spirit in the lives of His disciples. If you read that account of that initial baptism in the Holy Spirit, you'll find that there was something required by God of the disciples. Jesus told them in Acts 1, 4, and 5 to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, where He told them that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 14, we find them waiting on God. What are they doing when they're waiting on God? It says they were devoting themselves to prayer. Why? Because what needed to happen, God needed to do. The most powerful and effective part they could play in that is to pray for His will to be done. And yet when the baptism of the Spirit actually occurred, it was clearly something that God did supernaturally. Okay, we have to be obedient and do our part, which is why we have the baptism uh, with the Spirit and the subsequent gifts of the Spirit to begin with, which are all valid today, by the way. Those haven't gone away. Why do we have those? So that we can carry out the work that God has given us to do. Sometimes in Pentecostal churches, we focus on the, the gifts themselves, but the purpose of the gifts is to empower us to go out and do the work that God called us to do. That's what we're to be focused on. And yet, even with the gifts and all of our effort, the most effective thing that we can ever do for the lost is pray for them. Because when it's all said and done, God has to do the work of salvation because that is an expressly supernatural work. There is no argument and there is no proof that can save people. Only God can do that. And once they truly receive that life-changing faith from Him, the difference is obvious. And as we continue reading, we're going to find a great example of that. Let's read chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who 
he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus has obviously done a wonderful thing for this family, and they decide, along with others, to have a dinner in his honor. And during the dinner, Mary does something absolutely remarkable. She, she pulls out a pound of expensive pure nard ointment. This stuff was imported from India, and it was typically used by the Romans to anoint a person's head. And Mark's gospel tells us that she breaks the flask that it was in, which clearly shows that she intended to use all of it, every bit of it, to anoint Jesus. And then she lets down her hair, which in and of itself is remarkable because Jewish women would typically never unbound their hair in public. And then she anoints his feet. We know from the other gospels, his head also. And she begins wiping his feet with her hair. Now we know from Judas's comment that this was 300 denarii worth of perfume, which was the equivalent of a year's wages. Now, I want to tell you, it's hard to come up with a modern analogy to really put what Mary is doing here into perspective for us today. And, of course, there is no perfect analogy to be sure. But imagine with me, if you will, that you're giving a birthday dinner for a very special friend. And so I looked up the average annual income in America in 2013 at the Census Bureau. happened to be right at $52,000 a year. Keep that in mind. You're sitting at the table as the dinner winds down and the birthday cake is brought out. But one of the people there wants so badly to honor the guest who happens to be turning 52 years old that instead of using candles on his cake, she brings out a piggy bank full of $1,000 bills and smashes it on the floor. This is money she's been saving for retirement, but she begins to pick up those $1,000 bills and roll them up one at a time and place them on the cake the way that you would candles until 52 of the $1,000 bills are on the cake and she lights them in lieu of candles. $52,000 on fire on top of a cake just so the guest of honor will know how special this woman feels that he is. Now how many of us would react just like Judas did. He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? If you think about it, that seems like a completely reasonable question to ask, doesn't it? If your friend was burning $52,000 in cash on top of a cake at a birthday party, wouldn't we be asking something very similar and suggesting maybe you have your head examined? Hey, what are you doing? That money could be used for so many good things. It just seems so excessive, doesn't it? When I see people today who are radically on fire for Jesus, they just love him so much that they do the most incredible things sometimes, even things that can seem absurd or excessive. And it doesn't take very long for other people, a lot of times church people, <laughs> 
to criticize and question. And who better than Judas? He was one of the 12. This was as insider religious church person as you could get. He was the treasurer, the keeper of the money. I mean, if anyone was qualified to comment on the use of church funds, wouldn't it have been Judas? This guy has walked daily with Jesus himself. He's witnessed firsthand the miracles. He's received the teaching directly from Jesus' own mouth. He's had more exposure to Christ along with the other disciples than anyone else on earth. Can there be any doubt that Judas believed that Jesus was who he said he was? And yet verse 6 says about him, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, it doesn't matter how much time you spend in church or reading the Bible or being exposed to the truth of the gospel. In fact, you can even believe that it's all true. But unless you are persuaded in your heart to place all of your trust in him and to follow him, you will never experience the life-changing faith that only he can give. But can you see the stark contrast between Mary and Judas? One who doesn't behave as others expect her to, but has completely devoted her life to Christ. And the other who is very religious and level-headed and rational and knows all about Jesus, but has not experienced the life-changing faith that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.8. Now, I want to point something out here. This is very important about that life-changing faith that Paul describes in Ephesians 2.8. Let's put the entire definition uh, up on the screen, if you will. The, the, the definition of the Greek word, pistis, persuasion, fidelity are highlighted in, when you look at the actual entry. Just take a minute to read through that. You will notice as you do that nowhere in that definition of life-changing faith, saving faith, nowhere in that definition does it say perfect. Anywhere. True faith, being persuaded, putting all of our trust in him is not the same thing as being perfect. No one in here, including the guy that's talking, is perfect, and far be it from me to even ever suggest that you're not saved if you're not perfectly holy. That is definitely not what I'm telling you, right? The church can be a really messy place sometimes with all kinds of problems. Why is that? Because it's made up of really messed up people with all kinds of problems. You know, the very best place for messed up people with all kinds of problems to be. You know where that is? It's the church. It's the best place for me because I can be a royal mess sometimes. In fact, I'll tell you what, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been out somewhere in public doing something and somebody's an employee at a business where I am or something and they're doing something they shouldn't and I get aggravated or and the more I stand there and the more it goes on or maybe I feel like I'm being mistreated and I can feel myself getting angry. You know when your face gets hot? 
I start thinking about what I think I'm going to say to this person in just a second because I've about had it up to here. I can't tell you how many times I've been in that situation and I look down and realize I'm wearing an upcountry church t-shirt. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm like, of all the days I put this shirt on, why did it have to be today? I sure am glad that I can be a part of his church, even though I'm very far from perfect. And I'll tell you with confidence that the church is full of people with real life-changing faith who still have all kinds of problems because life-changing faith and perfection are two very different things. So if we're not all perfect, then what part of our lives is changed when we're saved by grace through faith in Him? Well, in addition to the fact that we have been eternally redeemed, true faith in Christ is evident in people not because of perfection, but because of devotion. True faith in Christ is evident in people not because of perfection, it's because of devotion, right? Think about it. There are some amazing athletes in this world, right? Some incredible artists, people uh, almost unbelievably talented and gifted in their fields of expertise. And a big part of what makes them so successful is the devotion that they give to their craft. But that does not mean that they're perfect. You think about uh, guys like Michael Jordan and uh, Peyton Manning and Mariano Rivera, right? These are guys who are talented and gifted and successful at the very highest levels and they were completely devoted to their sport. But they weren't perfect. Far from it. Michael Jordan shot a 26% in a, a playoff game uh, in 1997. Shot 26%. Just this past season, Peyton Manning, in one of his worst games ever, completed five out of 35 passes and threw four interceptions. 2001, Mariana Rivera blew the save in the ninth inning, losing the World Series that seemed all but assured right up through the eighth inning. These men were not perfect by any stretch, but no one would ever question their devotion. There's a difference between perfection and devotion. Mary and Martha were far from perfect, as we saw in our story last week, but their faith in Jesus was as genuine as anyone's, and that is obvious to anyone looking, not because of perfection, but because of their radical devotion to Him. That is the change that occurs. When we put our faith in a genuine trust in Christ, we not only believe what the Bible says about him, but we devote our entire lives to him. Mistakes and imperfections and all. And when you do that, people can see it. It's obvious that a change that occurs because you're devoted now to something different, something different than you were before. You're living for someone else first. That is life-changing faith. Let's finish our story for today, verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Very interesting that the religious sect wanted to kill Lazarus as well. If they didn't believe that the story was true, 
If they didn't believe that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, if, if they thought it was all a bunch of made-up stories, I don't think they'd be trying to kill Lazarus. I think they believed the stories about Jesus to be true, but it takes more than acknowledging the stories about him are true to truly be saved. We have to experience life-changing faith because there is a great chasm between us and God. It was created by our sin. And the only bridge that can span that chasm is saving grace through our faith that is provided to us by the work of Christ on the cross. The world needs to hear that from us. That there must be simply more than just an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ and what he did. We have to go beyond that intellectual assent about him into a devoted relationship with him. And people need to hear that from us. In fact, even more importantly, they need to see that in us. Not perfection, but devotion. A devotion that causes us to do things for him that may seem over the top to others, even absurd at times. A devotion that makes us want to spend a lot of time with him. Devotion that gives beyond what seems reasonable. A devotion that loves when it makes more sense to hate. A devotion that forgives when it makes more sense to punish. A devotion that helps those who cannot pay us back. A devotion that is willing to hold one another accountable. A devotion that honors him in every single life decision. A devotion that makes our lives look very different than they did before. It takes more than an acknowledging facts about him for that kind of devotion to exist in our lives. That kind of devotion only comes by way of a true and genuine life-changing faith. Let's pray.